Amen. Please take your Bibles. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. We continue in our series on Luke's Gospel, reading together this morning, verses 15 through 20. Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 20. This is God's word. Luke writes, Now as the people were in expectation, and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. Amen. This is God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us. You have revealed yourself to us in the person of your son by the power of your spirit. And so we come, triune God, asking that you would help us to understand your word, help us to apply your word in our lives day by day. Holy Spirit, come, we pray. Would you convict us of sin? Would you show us the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you show us our need for the cleansing blood of our Savior? Lord, we pray that by your grace, you would transform us so that we might go forth into the world to be fishers of men. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Much to my children's chagrin, I am not a fisherman. And I am not a fisherman in part because my dad was not a fisherman. He had played football at LSU when I, before I was born. And so I grew up uh, playing sports that involved a ball, not a rod and a reel. He did take us fishing periodically. I learned a few things about how to catch a fish, uh, but I'm pretty sure that my dad knew more than he taught me because the other reason I'm not a fisherman, which is I don't like touching crickets in a bucket and I don't like touching fish after I've caught them. So it's just not that much fun for me. Now, you may be like me, you may be the complete opposite of me. You may or may not be a fisherman, but the Bible tells you that if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you are a fisher of men. You may not be a fisherman, but you're a fisher of men. As we go out into the world each day, we are all to be involved involved in this great fishing enterprise, an endeavor that the Lord has set before us. Whether by word or by deed, we all have our fishing pools where we are around unbelievers, those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ where we meet and come in contact with people who are not his disciples. And so we have the opportunity to serve them with the compassion and the grace of our Lord and our Savior. We have the opportunity to engage them in conversation, to listen to them, to ask them questions, to answer questions, to to try to figure out where are you and your relationship to Jesus Christ and how can I help you to grow closer to him? How can I help you to grow closer to his church? 
Well, part of my calling as your pastor, as all of us, as your pastors and your elders, is to equip you, the saints, to do the work of ministry. And so this morning, I want to do that by showing you an expert man fisher. John, the baptizer, in this text, he teaches us at least three things about how to fish for men. First, he tells us, point to Christ Jesus. Secondly, he says, preach the whole gospel. And thirdly, he tells us, prepare for opposition. Let's look at these three things in our text this morning. First, John teaches us to point to Christ Jesus. John, as we know from the past couple of weeks, has been out in the desert. He's been confronting sin boldly. He's been calling people to repent, and he's been baptizing those who did. And verse 15 tells us that the, God, the people of God were in a state of expectation, of anticipation. They were wondering in their hearts, is John the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited one? They were looking at John's actions and they were comparing them to the scriptures and they were saying, is, is he the one to whom uh, the, all these promises have been pointing? Is he the one that we have been waiting for? There was this messianic expectation surrounding him. Disciples were beginning to follow John, as we see from other books in the Bible. But what does John do with his growing popularity, his growing fame? How does he respond to these questions of, of whether he is the Messiah? Well, you see it there in verse 16. He points the people to Christ Jesus. He says, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John is saying, don't look at me. I am not the Christ, but the Christ is coming. He is stronger than I am. He has a better baptism than I have. How does John point the people to Christ? Right? Well, he does it in two different ways. First, he humbly points away from himself. He points away from himself. He points away from his rank and his status. You see it there. He, he says, there is one coming who is stronger than I am. That one is my master. Indeed, I am so lowly, I'm not even worthy to be his servant. Untying his sandals is too high a task for me. Now in this day, untying the sandals of someone, those dirty, dusty sandals, it was the most menial task of all servants. Jewish servants would refuse to do this task. And John is saying, in relation to Jesus, the Christ, right? I am below even the lowest servant. The coming one is so much more deserving of your adoration and your service than I am. So he points a, away from his own rank, his own status. He also points a, away from what he does. Right? He says, my baptism is not ultimately what you need to be focusing your attention upon. There is one coming who has a better baptism. And my baptism, John is saying, is merely to prepare you for his coming, for his baptism. So John points away from himself, from his rank, his status, from what he does. And he points, secondly, to Jesus and to his person and his work. He points the people to who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And you see these specific aspects in, in John's words. He tells the people about a strong Messiah. One who is able, one who is able to save them from their sins. One who is the Lord, as we saw in the first few verses of this chapter. One who is the salvation of God. 
John exalts Jesus' power to forgive sinners, to save sinners from their sins. You remember the words in John's gospel that were on the lips of John the baptizer, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So here is John pointing people to the person of Jesus, but also to the work of Jesus. Particularly in in this passage, the the work of Jesus in baptizing and in judging. Now we'll we'll come to his work of judging in a moment, but but think about this work of Jesus' baptism. What does John teach us about the baptism of Jesus? Well, he tells us that Jesus' baptism is the real, the true, the substantial baptism. John says, I baptize you only with water. But there is one who is coming who won't just give you the sign, but will give you the reality to which the sign points. This coming one will powerfully bring the reality. And what is that reality? What is signified by John's baptism and even by the waters of of Christian baptism? Well, that reality, John tells us, is the cleansing and the purifying work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus will pour his spirit out on his people, John is saying. We know that that spirit has come on the day of Pentecost once and for all, and it comes upon all of those who put their trust in him. The spirit coming to regenerate, to cleanse from the guilt of sin, to set us free from the power of sin and death, to enable us as the people of God to fulfill the law of God, to renew us and to bear his fruit within us. Jesus has poured forth his spirit as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the risen and ascended Lord. The Spirit of Christ is that refining fire that purifies us as a people for Jesus' own possession. John is pointing us and pointing his hearers to what Jesus would do and what Jesus, from our perspective, what Jesus has done for us by his Holy Spirit. So here is John pointing away from himself and pointing to Christ. And as we fish for men, we must do the same. There's always a temptation, isn't there, in ministry to point to yourself, to who you are, to what you do, rather than to Jesus and who he is and what he does. We're always prone to draw attention to ourselves rather than to Jesus. We're always prone to draw attention to our gifts. Look at all that that I am able to do, right? We want people to like us. We want to get the honor. We want to get the glory that belongs only to Jesus. And yet, as John says again in the Gospel of John, he must increase, but I must decrease. Or in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as bondservants. For Jesus' sake. Humility must mark our presentation of the gospel. It is essential for ministry. The gospel is not about you. It's not about me. The gospel is about Jesus. He is the source of anything that attracts others to us. And he is the one to whom we are ultimately seeking to attract others. It's his person. It's his work that we want them to know, which which raises this question for us. As we are pointing people to Jesus, the question that this text raises for us is this, how well do you know Jesus yourself? 
As one of his disciples, how well do you know him as he has revealed himself in the Bible? One of the things that that pastors often are asked to do is to write letters of recommendation for people. And let me tell you, it's a whole lot easier to write that letter of recommendation when you actually know the person who's asking you to write it. Maybe you've been in a situation before where you're a teacher maybe and someone says, you know, a, a student that you taught like once long, long ago. And they're like, hey, will you write this recommendation for me? You're like, I don't even remember you. Right? Well, in the same way, as we seek to recommend Christ to others, how well do we know him so that we can recommend him? How well do we know him in his humanity, his divinity? How well do we know him in his gentleness, in his mercy, in his compassion? How well do we know our Savior and and his obedient life, his substitutionary death that we celebrate this morning around the table? How well do we know him in his victorious resurrection and ascension and his ongoing work now as our reigning king and our interceding priest and our teaching prophet? This is the question that as we go forth into the world as, as fishers of men, the better we know our Savior the easier it is to recommend him to others. The easier it is to point others to him. So get to know Jesus. Even if you've known him all your life, you don't know him as well as you could. Get to know your Savior better and better every day. That's the first thing John would show us and teach us. Point others to Christ. But secondly, in this text, he tells us this. Preach the whole gospel. Preach the whole gospel. In verse 17, Luke records John's words regarding the judging work of Jesus Christ. You see it there. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. But notice in the next verse, verse 18, that Luke then states that with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Do you see what Luke is saying? That this warning of John, this warning of judgment to come is part of the gospel, part of the good news, part of the evangel. As John evangelized, as he brought good news, he was sure to include this warning of judgment to come. Now, how can judgment be good news? How can a warning of judgment be a part of the good news that we are called to bring to those who are lost? Well, as we answer that question, let's first think about what John is saying here in this warning. He's telling us that when Jesus comes, both in his first coming and again in his second coming, a great sifting, a great separation will take place. In this verse, the the picture that Luke uses, the picture that John uses, is that of a threshing floor. In those days when the wheat or the barley harvest was brought in, it was was thrown out onto the floor and the oxen, the cattle would would walk back and forth over it to separate the the kernel from the husk. And the the wheat and the chaff would be separated, but they would all be there together. And and so the the farmer would take his, his winnowing fork, he would take his pitchfork and he would throw it all up into the air. And, and the, the, the wind would blow the chaff away. And what would be, remain, what would be left, would be the wheat, would be the barley, would be the kernel. Right? In this way, the threshing floor would be cleared of the chaff. Well, John is telling us that Jesus has his winnowing fork in his hand. And after the wheat and the chaff have been divided, he says, 
He will gather the wheat into his barn and he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Last week, you heard Pastor Dean even make reference to that in the text that he preached. What is John's point? John's point is that Jesus comes to separate and to divide mankind. There are two different fates for the wheat and the chaff. And so here is the warning, repent of your sins now before it is too late. John is warning of a, of a future destiny that those who fail to repent, those who fail to turn to Christ as Savior, will know Jesus only as judge. Now again, you ask, well, how is this good news? How is this part of the gospel that we're called to preach? Well, think about it. If you are in an unsafe situation, but you think that everything is perfectly fine, then isn't it good news for someone to bring you word, to bring you an alert that you are in danger? If you are in the path of a tornado or a hurricane, but you don't realize it, you don't know it, for whatever reason, your internet's gone off or you're just engaged in some book, some TV show, and you don't realize that that there's a storm out and there's a tornado coming, wouldn't it be a blessing? Wouldn't it be good news to hear from someone that, that you are in dire danger? Wouldn't you consider that to be good news? Yes, of course. Before you were safe, you were secure, but you were falsely secure. Or you were ignorantly secure. Now you have the possibility of heeding the warning of saving your life. They're telling you of the judgment to come was good news. In the same way as, as we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is always good news to hear of our sinfulness of the sinfulness of sin, to hear of God's wrath on unrepentant sinners and the unquenchable fires of hell. Because if you walk around ignorantly of that, then that is the only place you will end up. That will be your destination. If you don't think that sin is all that big a deal, then why would you ever care if someone came and offered to you the forgiveness of sin? being told about the coming wrath, being told about the coming separation of the wheat and the chaff, the sheep and the goats, of the repentant from the unrepentant. This gives you the opportunity. It even forces upon you to decide where do you stand? Where do you stand in relationship to the hope of forgiveness that's held out in the gospel? And so John says to us, preach the whole gospel. You see, it's all too easy to preach a half gospel, to speak of the love and the the grace of God for sinners, the mercy of Jesus Christ, but to shy away from speaking about the judgment of God, the wrath of God. And we do this, of course, because in our sinfulness, even as believers and disciples, we love the approval of men more than the approval of God. We like being liked by others. We know that people don't like to hear about their sin. It makes them feel uncomfortable. We don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable. But John says, preach the whole gospel. So often we are practical atheists. We, we buy into the secular lie that, that this life is all there is. And if there is an afterlife, really everyone enjoys paradise. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible instead teaches that there is an eternal unending fire, an inescapable judgment a a judgment of decisive and irreversible character for all who would cling to their sins, for all who would hold on to their life in this world. 
And when we fail to tell people about this, when we fail to warn them of the judgment to come, their danger, we're only preaching half the gospel. We're misrepresenting God. We are robbing glory from Jesus. And we're actually preventing people from coming into the kingdom of Jesus. For the gospel says that, that Jesus saves sinners from God's judgment, and he does that by enduring that judgment on the cross. As we come to the table, what are we celebrating? But the fact that Jesus has stood in our place as the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means the one who bears the wrath of God in the place of another. The only way to be spared the judgment of God is to trust in Jesus Christ who took that judgment in the place of sinners. If we fail to warn people about Jesus's judgment to come about Jesus's judgment bearing, then no one can be saved. And so I pray as we come to the table this morning, as we look at this text this morning, that the Lord would make us all much bolder than we are to preach Christ, to preach his whole gospel, that we wouldn't care so much less than we do about the, the opinion of other people. And you this morning who are outside of Christ, you this morning who are here, who hear these words and you realize that this is your end. This is where you are going to the eternal fires of judgment and hell. Would you heed this warning? Would you hear it as good news? Good news that there is a savior from the judgment of Christ. It is Christ himself who has been judged by the father on the cross I pray, we pray as believers for, for you who are not believers in Jesus, that you would repent and believe the gospel even this day. So John would tell us, point to Christ, preach the whole gospel. And finally, he would say, prepare for opposition. This is the last thing we learn about John's ministry of man fishing. If we're pointing people to Jesus and if we're preaching this whole gospel, then we must get ready to be disliked, to be rejected, to be persecuted, to even be put in prison or put to death like John was. You see it there in verses 19 and 20. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them also, that he locked up John in prison. Herod, the same Herod that was mentioned back in verse 1 of chapter 3, had divorced his wife in order to marry his niece, Herodias. And Herodias had been married to his half-brother, Philip, and she had divorced him, and, and Herod and Herodias had been married. And John calls this soap opera mess what it really is, sin. Divorce, adultery, even incest, as the old covenant law prevented you from marrying your brother's wife who was still living. And John reproves Herod. He calls him out. He challenges the one in authority for his wickedness. And he's imprisoned. And ultimately, he is beheaded. The point is this. If you confront sin, if you rebuke and reprove people because of their sin, if you tell them that there is a judgment to come, it will not be safe for you. It will not be easy for you. But it is what we are called to do, no matter what the consequences might be. Calling sin, sin is going to bring the response of rejection and hatred. Even offering the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ will bring this response. Because if we believe that, that sin needs to be forgiven, 
and we tell people that, that means that we're saying they're sinners, like we are. But no one wants to acknowledge and accept and affirm the fact that they are sinners, except the Holy Spirit enables them to do so. And yet we must never shy away from speaking the truth in love, from living a godly life, even if it leads to persecution and opposition. John, the baptizer, would agree with what Jesus will say eventually in this gospel. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Or as the apostle John will put it in 1 John 3, 13, do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. This is what we should expect. Prepare for opposition. Our portion is not found in this world. The book of Hebrews chapter 10 tells us we have a better possession, an abiding one. And therefore, we know that opposition, we know that persecution, we know that rejection is our lot as believers in this world. If you ever have come upon someone fishing, right? What do you do? You say, well, how's the fishing going? All right. Caught anything? You do it quietly, right? So you don't want to disturb their fishing. And typically, you know, people haven't answered that question, don't they? Like they know, they care if they've caught fish or not. So what about us? What about you? How's the fishing? Have you caught anything recently? Or are you just wet in the line and you really don't care? But God wants us to want to catch fish. God wants us to desire to see people repent of their sin and, and turn to Christ do you want that? Do you desire your unbelieving neighbors and family members to come to know Jesus, to be spared the judgment that John presents for us here? Then point them to Jesus, away from yourself. Tell them the whole gospel. Remind them that they will give an account for their life on the last day. Tell them about what Jesus has done for sinners. Call them to repent. And as you do that, you, believer, continue to repent of your own sin, of your cowardice, of your fear of man and love of the approval of men. And as you do this, prepare for opposition, John would say. This is how we fish. It's how we catch men. May the Lord Jesus make us fishermen. May he make us fishers of men, just like his servant John. And may he use us to give many men and women, boys and girls, his Holy Spirit, so that they too might be cleansed, that they too might be washed, that they too might know the freedom that comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the outpoured spirit. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, help us. Lord, you've called us to a task that so often feels beyond us. Lord, we want to be fishers of men. We want to go forth into the world with courage and boldness. We want to have open lips for our Savior. Lord, we pray that you would give to us opportunities. Lord, help us to see the fishing pools all around us. Help us, Lord, to even be imaginative and creative in how we bring the, the lost together. Lord, would they hear the gospel from us, from the preaching that goes out from this pulpit week in and week out, Lord, we ask that those who do not know Christ would come to know him, would be spared the wrath that is to come. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you took that wrath upon yourself. 
as we come now to remember and to celebrate that reality. Lord, would you feed us? Would you nourish and strengthen us so that we might go forth into the world to bear witness to your glory and grace? It's in your name we pray. Amen.